Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Dr. Michael Falk, and I'm going to be hosting this episode, and I'm joined by Dr. Brett Furstel. Today, we're going to talk about all things related to speed and agility. We're going to cover things like common mistakes that we see when working on speed, common myths around how to get faster, key performance indicators to improve your speed, how we reintroduce speed and agility after injuries, and why speed training matters in the first place for team sport athletes. This is a great episode. We cover a lot of topics, and I think everyone's going to be able to take something practical into your own workouts or training. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today, we're going to do another one of our kinetic roundtable discussions, and it's um, myself, Dr. Michael Falk, and then our physical therapist, Dr. Brett Furstel. And we're going to be diving into some of our topics surrounding speed and agility. So it's kind of been our big focus this month has been in particular on speed. We've taught a webinar on hamstring strains. We put out a bunch of content about um, myths around speed, some of our favorite return to running drills, um, and just other topics surrounding how to get faster or stay healthy as you get faster. So I'm really excited to uh, dive into this with you a little bit more today, Brett. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So let's, uh, we, we like busting myths on this podcast and, and, uh, taking, taking on some commonly, uh, mistaken, uh, beliefs. So what are some common mistakes that you see in speed and agility? The first things for me that come to mind with myths is that more is better and harder is better. So the first thing I'll start on is that the more is better. Um, when working on speed and agility, I really, really emphasize quality over quantity because when working on something like power speed, agility, something that's meant to be fast and powerful, fatigue is the enemy. So if fatigue sets in and you're only able to operate at even 80% or even 90, and you're trying to go 100% on purpose, you're not going to get nearly the same results. So like having enough rest time and educating on that it's okay if this feels relatively easy, as long as every single rep feels just as quality as the last. So I was talking to our student earlier yesterday, and I was just telling him like a personal story of me lifting and how I modified it to really focus on power. Cause that was what my goal was is I was doing some band assisted jumps and I was doing sets of four and I would notice that my first two reps felt awesome. They felt really fast. And then reps three and four, 95%, like they were just down. So instead of just continuing to go and I noticed that fatigue, I just did sets of two and I just happened to do more sets. So my quality of every single rep was better. And I like to take that same idea if I'm really work, working on someone's speed or their agility so we can work on their technique. They can work on their power development. They can really focus on quality. So, and I, I've had countless times too, working with an athlete that were in a speed and agility specific session and they hardly break a sweat and they walk away feeling like they barely got anything out of it. But if you educate someone on the reasons why that they don't need to kill themselves in order to get better quality training in, that's okay. It, not every workout needs to be um, busting you down, making you sweat and making you feel like you want a puke bucket, speed and agility <laughs> training almost never, I don't think should fill that, that realm. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to make someone tired. It's harder to make someone faster. Yes. 
I think along the same points, I I taught our webinar last night on um, hamstring strains. I'm going to date the date the podcast, so this is going to come out in a couple of weeks. But uh, we we did a webinar a few weeks ago. If you're interested, I'm happy to send you the recording. Just shoot us a DM. Um, but one of the things that I find really interesting, there's a guy named Mike Young, and he made a point that um, to really improve speed and to get the protective effect or the the benefits of top end speed work it can't just be a hundred percent effort. Like a hundred percent effort is, is important, but it actually has to be 95% of that athlete's maximal velocity. And so to really ensure it, like he suggests having timing gate set up to make sure that you're still hitting that 95% threshold, because if the athlete's tired, they're not going to be able to achieve that speed. So even though they're giving you a hundred percent effort, if they're under recovered, their speeds are going to start to drop and they're no longer getting the benefit from that. And I thought that was really interesting. So he has a good rule of thumb that um, I've used over the years that for every, if you're truly working at max, max effort, max intensity for every 10 yards run, they need one minute of rest. So if they do a 10 yard uh, sprint, they need one minute before that next rep. And I think that especially when we go out and work on top end speed and and have some longer distances covered, you know, there's ways that you can use that rest time where the athlete's not just sitting around doing nothing, um, doing film review of that rep, looking at technique, maybe incorporating a couple low effort drills, trying to get them to feel positions, postures, things of that nature. So it doesn't have to be just like run 20 yards, sit around on your butt for two minutes. Like we can still use that time effectively without just continuing to drive that athlete into the ground. Yeah. I, I think that's really helpful to sort of guide how much rest do you actually need? Because one thing that I've definitely been guilty of, and I'm sure a lot of strength coaches, PTs, who's ever working with someone in a speed agility setting is it's hard to know what your athletes feeling, unless maybe you practiced it yourself. Cause you'll get quickly fatigued if you're working and operating at that high intensity and you don't really realize it. So if you're just, and you never practiced the workout that you wrote up and you're having your athletes go through this, you don't know how fatigued they actually are unless to some degree you ran through it. So I think yeah. it's important to have either these established rest periods and consideration to that at every athlete will recover differently. Someone will be really quick. Some will need a lot more time. So just taking that into account for each individual, I think is pretty important too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I think, I think it's key and just recognizing that there's different types of fatigue. Like there's the, just, okay, I need to go lay on the ground in a pile of sweat because I'm like just totally fatigued, but with speed training and, and really any this relates to any max effort, explosive movement, throwing a ball, hitting a ball, uh, you, you know, you're a big Olympic weightlifter. Mm-hmm. It's like a different fatigue where, mm-hmm. yeah, you're not like dragging, but your nervous system, your central nervous system in particular has neural fatigue and this can set in throughout your body where, yeah, you're not like, I don't need to go lay on the ground and, and puke in the puke bucket, but I'm fatigued because I did work at that high, high level of intensity. So yes, I think that's, I think that's a really good one. Yeah. Um, I, what I found just cause we have it. Um, and if, if any coach has it is using some type of tracking, like you mentioned, timed gates is great to be able to track either the speed of so that someone's doing it, or, um, if they're working on jumps, if you can somehow track the jump height or bar velocity trackers, any of those, because again, personal experience, I've been guilty of it myself. I'll think I gave myself enough rest time and I'm starting trying to hit a certain velocity with my bar, my bar speed. 
and I took two minutes rest and it was down. And then next set I took four and it was back up to where it was. And although I felt completely ready to hit the set in reality, I, I just wasn't. So if there's a way to objectively track the performance that someone's doing, whatever activity at, that's, I think the ultimate goal, but not always possible. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think the, I'll, I'll do my biggest mistake right now and, and I'll call myself out on this or, or say I've evolved. Um, I think early on in my career, I fell into the bucket that working on top end speed and team sport athletes wasn't necessarily important. And, you know, the thinking of this goes that athletes generally speaking, rarely hit top end speed during a game in most team sports, you know, it's mostly they're slowing down, speeding up, changing directions, just running faster than the person next to them. But there's very few sports that they're actually in a game setting, like opening all the way up and running. We can think of a few wide receiver running back, running away from uh, 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 the opposing teams in the open field, maybe a soccer play on a run. But, you know, sports like basketball, they might never actually do that during a game. And so early on, I because of that logic of like, well, people don't run at top speed, so we don't need to emphasize that much. And just a, it's much harder in my opinion to coach and visualize because you generally need more space. Um, it happens so fast and, uh, the technique is so specific that I wasn't probably totally comfortable with actually coaching it and, and working on it. And so I really shied away. And I think it's something that I see a lot of um, performance coaches and other things not work on because of some of those constraints. And my thinking over the past three, four years, even more in the last couple of years has really changed on this, where, um, even if that athlete doesn't necessarily hit that speed in the game, it's a tremendous way to train, to train stiffness, vertical force production, rate of force development, um, all of these qualities. And it builds up what we call like a speed reserve, where if you can work on that top end speed and improve that over for that course, of the athlete, well, that makes the rest of their running in the game less stressful. Like you raise the ceiling of their potential. So now, even if they're running the same speed in the game, it's not as stressful for them. They're not as likely to get injured. Um, it's better for their hamstrings. There's, there's all these fringe benefits that yeah, even if it doesn't necessarily happen in the game, it's still extremely beneficial to work on. Yeah, I know. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, thinking of it as training rather than just do they actually do it in their sport is a great way to think about it. Because I did just come across this, this paper and I might butcher the actual numbers on it, but the difference okay. of running between seven meters per second and nine was double the EMG or activity of the hamstrings. So if you're trying to work on strength in a weight room, no sport, unless you're a powerlifter or weightlifter is going to be lifting weights in their sport, but you still do it anyways to try to build their capacity or raise that ceiling to some degree. I think top end speed running can be thought of in a similar way. Like you just mentioned. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that's something that I'm seeing generally, um, change more something that I've spent a lot of time recently, you know, diving in because because admittedly is just something that I, I don't think I was very good at coaching. Like it's hard. I mean, legs are turning over so fast. I think you really need to use some type of slow motion video um, to help do this. 
Um, space constraints are definitely a thing um, in, in most settings that it's hard to coach unless you can go out to a track or a big mm -hmm. field and really let athletes open up. So um, I think that's something that I'll hopefully, you know, continue to improve at my coaching and, and teaching ability. And hopefully we keep seeing more and more athletes run truly max effort with adequate rest mm -hmm. um, across long, larger distances to, to help make them more robust and, and better overall athletes. Yeah. I mean, I'm on board with that one. All right. So let's, uh, let's take on our, our favorite one. Um, what are some myths that you see in speed and agility? Um, so I think I kind of attacked, um, a couple of those myths, but I know, um, somewhat recently we just made a post on agility ladders. So I'll, I'll get on that one. Yeah. Um, and I'll just start out that agility ladders. I only said that because that's what people <laughs> usually know them as or speed ladders, yes. but in general, I like to call them just ladders because I don't think they're the greatest tool to work on speed or agility. When someone is using a ladder, generally they're looking down at their feet to make sure they don't trip over it. Cause their coach might yell at them and make them do burpees, or they're just moving their feet really fast, but not going anywhere in almost no sport does that really help performance? Usually a better performer is going to be able to cover ground faster and using an agility ladder, although it might look really cool, it might look really sexy. Like someone's getting a lot better. I don't think it's the best use of time to work on speed and or agility. So I'm not saying they should never be used. Um, nor do I never use them. It's just usually for different reasons. Um, but that's, I think a pretty big myth that, if you really want to get better, I think there's better uses of time. Yeah. I think you said it, you said it perfectly. Uh, and you know, I think we, we did just do a, a social media post on this as well. If anyone wants a little bit more information, but, and I think you did a nice job in that of, uh, we, we do use ladders, um, per, particularly in rehab very early as like a controlled low effort plyometric drill, yeah. or just light impact, um, just getting the athlete comfortable moving through a pattern, having stuff around their feet. It's not that they're like, you know, I think some people think that ladders are like the devil incarnate. Like if you <laughs> put an athlete in them, they're like, yeah, it's gonna, you know, blow up or something. They're not the worst things ever invented. They just don't do the things that people think they want it, that people think they do. Yes. yes. My, my favorite is like the YouTube videos where it's like, what an NFL wide receiver would look like if uh, agility <laughs> ladders transferred onto the, onto the sport and like they move their feet really fast, but they don't actually ever leave the line of scrimmage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The internet can be a great place for some stuff like that. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, I think my myth will be a little bit on the same, a um, little bit down the same vein, but it's that people think they're working on agility when they're really working on change of direction. And what we see with this is, what I mean by this is that in a team sport athlete environment, they're not changing direction because a coach tells them to, or because there's a cone somewhere they're changing direction in response to something that's happening in the game environment. And it changes their movement patterns. And this is something that I've learned a lot where athletes, if they know I'm going to run to this cone and turn 90 degrees and run back to that cone and then turn 90 degrees and run over to this cone over here, they will actually move differently than they will when they're reacting to another person or their environment. And 
in the in fancy terms is called perception action coupling and it's that the athlete is choosing their action based off what they see so they see a stimulus their brain has to process that and then they have to choose a motor output and that's really the difference between um, change of direction and agility and change of direction is definitely a piece of agility, just the mechanics of how do you hit certain angles and force vectors and position your body in the most optimal way. It definitely plays a role, but if you don't help the athlete put it together and, and help them learn how to interpret what happens and put it into a a actual stimulus, it's not going to transfer to the, to that sporting environment. And and they're not necessarily going to be as successful as they would be otherwise. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Um, I see agility in the same realm and I also see it as it's very much a skill. So if someone can change direction on a cone really, really well, but they're terrible at doing it on a coach's call or in react to something, it's not the change of direction that they struggle with. It's the, like um, observing it, interpreting it and making a decision off of it. So that needs to be practiced so they can visualize it themselves and then reproduce what movement they want. And that takes time to get more efficient at and figure out what options to choose from are more effective than others in response to whatever happens. Yeah. And all sports are really unpredictable. So you can't do every single thing that they might see, but if you can give them enough options and practice at it, they're more likely to have success on the court field, whatever it might be. Yeah. And there's no teacher like failure. Like there's, there's no, there's no teacher like you know, I'm old and unathletic and I just ran by you because you use this really inefficient pattern, right. To motivate the athlete to find a different way. Um, so I think it it can be just a really good teaching tool too, for the athlete to, to explore their environment, try these different things have, you know, we say like, I want them to fail safely, like in a controlled environment. Like I wanted to try something be like, well, that didn't work like how I thought it was going to. So let me try a different option. Um, and that's going to really give them those repetitions in a safe space that they can make those mistakes um, and improve so that then as they go to the game, they're not having to think about it, but they've, they've experienced this. They know intuitively what works and what doesn't work. And their brain is going to start self-selecting into these better, better positions, better movements, better angles without someone there coaching them. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really good point. And one thing that I thought of, and then I, I see is whether it's a strength coach or a PT or anyone that's in this somewhat realm, they might just think it's out of their um, wheelhouse. Like they don't need to work on it because they're getting it somewhere else. In general, I think that's a poor assumption because they might think the sport coach, they're getting enough of that in. When in reality, if you don't ask the athlete what they're doing, maybe they're just working on a lot of drills in practice and on, on team stuff. And they're not actually getting this in. And then you, because you think the sport coach is doing it are maybe only doing strength training. And then they have this gap that they're not actually training this skill in all of this in a controlled environment to teach them and how to be better. I think that's one gap that can be frequently there that we just don't realize because we assume someone else is doing it. Yeah. My favorite story with that is uh, I did a, a rehab for a professional basketball player. He's come back from an ACL injury. And we're starting to work on defensive, uh, like lateral slides and lateral movement, change of direction, things like that. And so I was walking him through, you know, some of his patterns of how he could better, you know, flip his hips to push versus having to cross his feet over. And, and he's like, that's not how, that's not how I 
we play defense and <laughs> I was like, okay, I mean, by all means, like you're a professional athlete, like I, I'm willing to learn from you or take your feedback. So I was asking about it and he's, I'm like, so what, like, what do you do? And he said, well, I just let him go by me and then try to back, you know, reach around and back tap the ball <laughs> after they beat me. I'm like, well, that's, that's, <laughs> it's definitely one way of, uh, of trying to play defense. I'm not, not sure that's necessarily the best way, but, uh, never assume that good habits are being taught in practice. That's my, uh, my take yes. home from that. Yep. I so, couldn't agree more. All right. Well, let's dive into, um, I'd be curious your thoughts on what you see as some key performance indicators for athletes to be fast. Like what are certain things that they have to be able to do? Um, the basic one for me is they have to be able to get in the positions that prime them to be able to move efficiently. So if they don't have the range of motion or the motor control in order to get there, and you keep trying and they're just not having success, you need to take some steps back and address what needs to be addressed in the first place because accelerating, decelerating, top end speed, they all have different positions and range of motion requirements that allow for the most efficient movement pattern. Now, everyone's going to be somewhat different, but with that in mind, there's the absolute minimum that they have to be able to hit the positions that you're trying to get them into. Then once they have that, they need to have both the strength, stability, skill, body awareness, all of those things to incorporate into this movement. Because we're talking about speed, it's really fast. If they can't do it slowly, it's hard to expect them to be able to hit it fast. So if you can hit these patterns at a slow speed, re-ingrain this skill, make sure that they have enough strength in order to complete the task well, those are all at least baseline things of what to check the boxes off to make sure that you can train for speed. And from a PT's perspective, if you're rehabbing someone from pain, injury, surgery, whatever it might be, you need to make sure that from a healing standpoint, they're adequately prepared and you're not trying something too early that you shouldn't be, that might put more stress on them that they're not used to and might put them at more risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with everything that you said, just the ability to get in those positions for them to understand what those positions are and feel like have the ability to control themselves. I think that's so huge. Um, just to kind of expand on that. Once we have those basics, I think that the two things that probably matter the most, when we look at differentiators between world-class like sprinters and most team sport athletes is the amount of vertical force production, especially at top end speed, you know, the elite sprinters are worlds better than even the best NFL wide receiver, something like that. So high force, vertical force production as they get up to that top end speed. And it's rapid. It's like in that first millisecond mm -hmm. and along with that, then the ability to generate stiffness, having the strength and, and contractile properties of all the tissues in the foot and ankle to generate stiffness where they can get off the ground quickly. Um, you know, we're looking at ground contact times at top end speed, you know, way faster than any plyometric we can come up with well mm -hmm. under, you know, 0.2 seconds and, um, athletes that can't generate that stiffness, even if they can produce high force, they can't, you know, stiffen up to control it, or they can't produce any force anyways. So that's sort of irrelevant. So I think those are, those are pretty clear, like clearly defined in the literature as some of those major differences, Dr. Ken Clark, somebody that's done a lot of work in that area. And I think his research is, is really, really interesting at, at looking at the importance of those things. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's perfect. Yeah. And we see it. I mean, we'll, we'll do a basic drop vertical jump 
um, on our force plates with some of the athletes and, you know, they're spending half a second on the ground. Like they, you know, they can't stiffen up even on two feet from a pretty low box height. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if they can't do that, that's going to be really tough to generate that much stiffness when they're sprinting on one leg with forces way higher happening much quicker. It's Mm -hmm. like, you don't yet have the motor control motor qualities to, to be fast. Like we need to work on that. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Let's, um, maybe step out of the performance realm a little bit and, and look, um, maybe towards the injury realm, um, just a bit. I'd be curious. You do a lot of our ACL rehab now, um, from let's, we could, we could talk about any injury really, but I'd be curious from an ACL standpoint, what, where do you start as you start reintroducing speed and agility? What are some criteria that you look for to continue to progress? Kind of what does that process look like a little bit for you? Yeah. So for me, I usually incorporate some basic drills that I anticipate progressing earlier than maybe expected. And and they might be something really easy, like a wall drill or a wall drill load and lift and like those basic things that you're just hitting up against the wall in an acceleration type position to work on developing these habits in these positions and body awareness really early. So you don't need a lot of um, strength or time out from surgery in order to hit these. It's not that stressful, but it's somewhat just skill building. That's all I really think of it as. And then on top of that, early on working on really low level force absorption. So as long as they have decent strength, they don't really have pain or that much swelling. If we're working on snap downs, they're just working on their force absorption really early that in my mind is going to help them later on be able to sprint, change directions, all these things, even though they might not think it. Um, I usually will educate on this because they might seem really easy and really dumb exercises. But if I tell them why we're doing it and what it's going to work to, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now I'm actually going to put effort into what I'm doing. And that's really, really helpful. And then taking it slowly by slowly, um, like general principles would be um, closed drills to open drills, um, performing them relatively slow to faster. And I'll say that with uh, an asterisk that performing a speed drill slowly usually isn't that helpful because mechanics might change completely. So I do want them to be able to have the capacity to perform it at a minimal speed. I'll do air quotes because what that means is somewhat nebulous, but as long as they can perform the task I'm asking them to do with positions and patterns that mimic what they would do at high speed, whatever speed that's at for them, that's okay. It doesn't need to be 100% because for me, it's skill building and tissue tolerance in loading. And then eventually it's a smooth transition instead of just working on typical strength movements this whole time so that they hit certain criteria of strength, limb symmetry indexes, um, and then just say, okay, we're going to try speed training now because you've hit these certain benchmarks. I think it should be a very gradual process that when you do actually want to start these drills, it's a really smooth transition. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you hit on so many good points. I just got done, um, teaching like the sports elective last semester for advanced PT students at Marquette. And it's like, if somebody can walk, they can do an A march, you know, and and that's quote unquote, working on speed. And the more that we can 
take time early on to work on some of these little things to teach them how to get their hip into a good position, how to stabilize their core and pelvis in that position, then the less we're going to have to cue or work on as they get later into their rehab. And it's very simple. Like people always ask all the time, like, well, how do you know they're ready to go from that drill into the next one? It's like, well, we never really know, but we just try to get it close enough that it's like a logical next step. And then we try it and maybe it doesn't go well. And then you wait a few more weeks, work on some more stuff and try it again. Um, you know, we have certain criteria, but a lot of, a lot of it, I think with speed and agility is exactly like you said, okay, let's just start to gradually creep forward. Let's move a little quicker. Let's move a little more explosively. Okay. We're moving pretty fast in a closed environment where the athletes comfortable. What is What do they look like when I add a a chaotic element, some type of reaction, if it just all completely breaks down, then they weren't yet ready for that complexity. We just dial it back and, and -hmm. continue to, to work on it gradually. Um, so I think that there's those elements that are really important. Another trick that I've used in the past, um, especially if we're talking about like quicker movements, um, it sounds counterintuitive sometimes, but if I want somebody to slow down, I'll add resistance. And that way effort can stay high, but speed can stay low. So, you know, if I don't want them, if I want them to kind of feel comfortable pushing and and working hard, let's add a little bit of band resistance, sled resistance, whatever the case may be, do that same drill, find a resistance that they're able to not have bad technique with, but it lets them work at pretty high intensities, but it slows that movement down, which is maybe going to especially make the deceleration phase, um, much easier. And I think that that's something that especially young clinicians underestimate is they think the hard part is the accelerating. Like they're thinking about like the 10 yard run or the 20 yard run. I'm thinking about the 10 yard stop, Mm -hmm. the 20 yard stop. Like that's actually the, that's actually usually the most stressful part for the athlete. And, um, sometimes adding resistance can help speeds, lower deceleration is going to be easier on that back end. Yeah. So that you bring up a great point. Um, one thing I actually do most of the time is I'll do what's generally, I think, considered a more advanced drill and I'll do it before I have an athlete return to running. And what those might look for me is like a sled push because they're into their acceleration position, but they have a lot less ground reaction force on their limbs and they're able to work these patterns and they can do it relatively fast before I'll ever have them run. And then a progression from that, like you mentioned, is I'm going to add resistance. So I might have them run with a band resistance because they're still able to get that turnover and that patterning in, but every stride they have, they're not moving as far. So they're going to have less ground reaction forces, less stress, but they're still skill building. All these things that I do generally before I'll have them give them the running program if they really want to get back into just running, um, which I think it a lot of times that's counterintuitive. And I know with students that we've had, they've asked me why I'm doing something like that before. And that's my explanation. To me, it just yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree completely. I think that leads me into my last thought or question of the day. Do you have any um, other training elements that I guess from a speed standpoint you really um, love to use. Um, you were breaking up on my end quite a bit, but I'll, I'll re ask the question to make sure I heard you right. You just asked about other, um, training like modalities, things that I'll use to 
help speed agility training. That's not just specific speed agility training. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are there anything else that you like? Yeah. So a lot of it will depend on the specific athlete and what I'm seeing that they need or what they could benefit from. Cause everyone's going to be different. As we mentioned before, if someone is really strong, but they can't develop stiffness very well, they're probably going to be relatively slow in either a change of direction situation or speed. So they'll benefit not necessarily from more strength training, but something that will have them work on speed more. So not to overstress them, but if you're um, reducing their body weight somehow, like band assistance, training, something like that, maybe they'll benefit from that a little bit more to help work on rate of force development, some stiffness qualities that they're not getting with their strength training. Vice versa, if I'm working with an athlete that's really, really springy, but they just don't have enough strength to control their body under slow and rapid change of direction. If someone's pushing into them when they want to make a change, um, they're going to benefit more from resisted strengthening and just resisted speed movements. Um, so it really depends on each, each person. Um, but I will work band assisted jumps, band assisted sprinting. Sometimes, um, it's just kind of hard, um, in our setting at least, but I could see a use for it. Um, and then I kind of mentioned the resisted aspect that we'll use, and I'll use that both as a, a prerequisite to actually running, and I'll still use it as a later end drill again, to just keep them accelerating through. If I find that they're just giving half effort after however many yards. Yeah. So I think they're all great options. It really just depends on who's who you're working with in front of you and why. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think you hit it perfectly. I think we tend to, I tend to see more evidence supporting like resisted running. There's actually some interesting research on, you know, you can get different things at different percentages of resistance and body weight. So um, it's definitely, if it's something that you're interested in, there's quite a bit published about where the optimal um, resistance is for different qualities, things of that nature. I actually like ballistics a lot, especially with young athletes or like throwing a medicine ball, Mm -hmm. um, or using a medicine ball somehow, like on a change of direction to feel, um, some of that load into that hip for deceleration, things like that. I'm, I'm a fan of those things. I think sometimes, um, especially with younger athletes, like some of the concepts we're trying to get them to feel are like a little bit nebulous. Like, what do you mean? You want me to do this, but when you hand them a ball and you're like, okay, throw it as far as you can and take off running after it. Like it, Mm -hmm. it sort of uh, connects with them. They like get it much more. So I think those are good. Not there's probably a, there's probably a time and a place for overspeed training. I I saw it a lot more when I was younger. Um, and I've seen it used less and less. I'm not as familiar with the research now, um, as what, what it's saying out there. Generally speaking, if people ask my opinion, I probably tend to say like, maybe for the right athlete, if there's like a specific, like there's a big turnover problem or something. But, um, I think generally speaking, we see people turn their legs over well enough. It gets to be poor backside mechanics or poor vertical force production. And like, I don't think that overspeed training is going to, um, address that. I do think there can be a little bit of a risk with like getting people moving faster than they're comfortable with. And now technique breaks down and mm-hmm. you can have injuries that, that can come out of that. So again, there's, 
there's, I think there's always a time and a place. Like if you can make a case on, on why for a specific situation, I'm not, it's just like the agility ladder. It's not like the worst thing ever. Um, I just don't tend to do it personally. Yeah. And I can't say I ever, ever have either. Cause I think yeah. there's usually lower hanging fruit or other things yeah. that you can probably work on than working on overspeed training just to say that you yeah. did something that was really hard or unique or something like that. Exactly. Just actually go run fast. Like that's the key <laughs> step. Like everything. I mean, it's so amazing to me sometimes when it's like, Oh, I did all these other accessory things to get faster. But like you didn't actually just go run fast, <laughs> like mm-hmm. just go run fast, take adequate rest, go run fast again. And you will probably get faster over time. Yes. And I've worked with a lot of people with jumping, same exact thing. They yeah. trying to do all these things, these, these band exercise or weight training and all of this, and they barely jump and they didn't get that much higher at their jump. And they asked like, what the heck I put in all this work. When you should just ask the question, like how much have you been jumping? And if they say <laughs> barely any, there's your low hanging fruit. Let's jump yes. more. Let's do the thing more that you're trying to get better at. I know. I know it's, uh, the longer that I'm in this field and the longer that I practice, I feel like I just keep getting simpler. Like I didn't know very much early. And then as I learned more, I'd started doing more. And now as I'm advancing and, and have continued gaining more experience, like my filter keeps getting smaller again, where we're back to just doing, you know, much more simple drills. So, mm-hmm. yep. I, the, the best people always do the basics. Well, and the basics work for a reason. There's not always a need to do something that's really unique or really just far-fetched, the basics do a really good job. So yeah. never lose sight of that, I think. I love it. So, all right, man, enjoyed uh, chatting with you today. This was fun. I think hopefully we uh, covered quite a bit of information that'll be helpful to both athletes that are trying to improve their speed or agility or other PT strength coaches that uh, work with athletes in this field. So as always, thank you to everyone for listening and we'll look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode. Hey, Dr. Michael here. I want to say a sincere thank you for taking the time to listen to that episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. Dr. Brett, Lauren, and I are all extremely passionate about this podcast and trying to use it to help share high quality, factual information and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions that we see around athletic performance and rehabilitation. If you have a minute, we would sincerely appreciate you taking the time to leave a rating and review on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a teammate, coach, or colleague who you think may benefit. We want as many people to be able to hear and listen to this information as possible. Lastly, if you are on social media, head over to our page at MKE Sports Podcast or at Kinetic underscore SMP to follow us so that you get all the latest information. We love to engage, so leave a comment on this podcast. Tell us what you learned or feel free to ask us a question. We sincerely appreciate all of the support and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.